BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When I was a kid, I loved the Batman TV show. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J. Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, and the Chicago Reader. Benny J., take it away. Thursday, February 18th, 2021, the headline. Wow, I couldn't have planned this uh, any better uh, with our uh, great guest. Uh, Agitate, Rush Limbaugh. Agitator who made talk radio a right-wing attack machine. An obituary for Rush Limbaugh passed away from cancer the other day. And it, by chance, happens to be the front-page headline on the day that I get to talk to my old friend. But you know what? I'll let my old friend introduce himself. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Well, I'm Richard Steele, a longtime friend of Ben Jarofsky. And that's quite a privilege. And I've been in broadcasting Retired now, but I spent like 48 years doing that uh, for a living. So there you go. And a little bit of television on public television, too. So, you know, I'm kind of been in it for a long time. I miss some of it. There you go. Uh, Richard Steele is a legend in this business. He always gets a little irritated when I say it because he says, ah, it just means I'm old. Uh, But he's been around as long as I have and maybe a little longer. Uh, One of the few people who has that privilege has been around as long as I have, maybe a little longer. Uh, Richard has worked uh, in jazz, R&B, soul, uh, talk radio, uh, WBEZ, the barbershop show, He's a legend in Chicago, and I. Uh, it's always fun talking to you, Richard. And I did not plan, obviously, uh, that Rush Limbaugh would die the day before you come on the show, but just so happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know. So, I, listen, everybody, I, yesterday when, they, when he died, my line was this, Richard. This is just how I am wired as a human being, uh, for better or for worse. When someone dies in that immediate aftermath that first day that 24 hours or so i just follow my mom's dictate if you can't say something nice don't say anything at all all right so that's kind of how my attitude was about rush limbaugh now 24 hours has passed so i feel like i I cannot i'll be honest with you richard i just could not stand his voice his politics his nasty sense of humor punch low sense of humor um but What's your thoughts on it? I mean, he's a, he was a giant uh, in the industry that you worked for so long on. So I, I'm sure you must have a multitude of feelings when you think about uh, Rush Limbaugh. Talk a little bit about what your thoughts are. Well, absolutely. I, and, you know, I agree with you. I did not uh, like his politics at all. I mean, I totally detested his politics. But to give him his due, he was a he was a marvelous broadcaster. I mean, he was really good at what he did. And uh, he was able to connect with people and communicate to the degree that he had like 3 million followers. I mean, if you when you have those kinds of numbers, you can't dismiss it, no matter who those followers are. In his case, his followers were kind of in the Trump mode. Well, 
all the way in the truck load. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, I was surprised. I was, I thought that Biden would probably say, uh, uh, we didn't agree on politics, but my condolences to his family, you know, because that's kind of the guy that Biden is, um, it's a question now of what, you know, what does Fox do with him not there anymore? But, you know, he, he came to Chicago. You probably read the bio. A guy named Tom Trellop, who was a big name in the business, um, brought him in, knew him from some other stations. He'd been on small stations, brought him to Chicago, took about two years for him to warm up. And, you know, his, his timing probably went right along with the conservative upsurge. And, uh, you know, he became a star. Um, you know, one of the most disgusting things to me, and this is, I guess, not about him personally, but yes, it, in part it is, is when Trump put the Medal of Honor around his neck. I just, you know, we're talking about people like Rosa Parks and others of significant note, um, Cicely Tyson. Uh, you know, how do you then present this to somebody like Rush Limbaugh. I had a, that was a, a major issue with me um, because he, he sort of, uh, I don't know, he just made that award non-significant. It, it isn't non-significant, obviously. Some some major people who were great, who graded, who were graded what they did and deserved it. But here's a guy who, he received that based on the fact that he supported Trump and he had 3 million listeners and he was on Fox. And you know, Trump would talk to him on a regular basis and, you know, got a lot of his political thought connected to the public by doing it through uh, Rush Limbaugh. Uh, yeah, he was pretty mean on the air and said some awful things and was never, he never apologized. That's kind of like Pump. <laughs> Pump. <laughs> no, Trump never apologized about anything. And uh, Rush Limbaugh never did apologize. And Ben, here's my thought about that. There are some people who do talk radio and I, this may be on both sides, but primarily on conservative talk radio. I don't know if they necessarily believe all those things that they're saying. I and mean, they believe some of them. Uh, I don't know if idealistically uh, their ideology is exactly, you know, as they pretend it to be. And it may be. But my thinking is that some of these guys who are making a lot of money, you know, it comes down to, okay, this this is something that is very successful for me. And I'm going to continue to do this. Um, and there are some people at the end of the day, I lost your picture too. At the end of the day, they, um, in, in some cases will say, well, what I really thought was this, that, and the other thing. Um, obviously Rush Limbaugh never did say that to his death. He stood by his convictions, uh, of, uh, of, uh, uh conservatives principles and policies and all of that. The difference, I think, between... I don't know if there's a difference between he and Trump, really. The difference... Trump is not a... a, a you know, Limbaugh might have been a Republican in, in really for real. I mean, conservative thinking, conservative ideology. Trump took up that mantle because he came along at the right time. Uh, there was a, dis a disaffected uh, white American public, not all of them, but category a category that was waiting for somebody like Trump. They were pissed off about Obama being president for eight years. And uh, there's also this feeling about the browning of America. And a lot of people are intimidated by that because, of, because the, uh, you know, the browning of America will happen in the, in the next 25 years where there'll be more brown and black people than there will be white people. So he, um, Trump, on the other hand, Trump would be anything that's going to get him paid. 
The bottom line is this. They're holding up Trump as the person who is going to be the sort of the uh, beacon for the party. That is all bullshit. And they don't they they, they can't seem to understand. They can't seem to understand why that, you know, the people who support Trump. I saw a thing in the on, somebody sent me a thing online saying life is too short to argue with a Trump supporter. And, and so um, but the bottom line is this is what they really don't understand about that. Everybody is entitled to their own thoughts about ideology and politics. This is America. But when you, you don't recognize that this guy is conning you, it's called the long con. And the reason he will stay in Republican politics is because it will get him paid. He doesn't give a damn about uh, about politics and ideology and any of that. I mean, that's that, that's none of that matters. Um, let me tell you something that this is interesting uh, that to me fits that. And this was a thing I read uh, about... Um, was a saying, uh, it's easier to fool people than it is to continue to uh, convince them that they're fooled. Yeah. And that was Mark Twain. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. I mean, I don't, what will take them, what will, what will it take for them to stop buying into it? I don't know. Some of them did stop buying into it when they, you know, marked the date of January 6th that he'd be somehow back in the white house after this insurrection. So some of them, uh, I think, was it the Rude Boys? Some of them said, uh, uh, you know, uh, QAnon said, well, we've been fooled because he didn't do what he said he was going to do. There are some people who still think that March 4th is another date. There's a master plan, and somehow he's going to take over the presidency. And how do you talk to anybody with that thinking? Kinsinger from Illinois, the Republican, his family won't even talk to him. They yeah. issued a letter saying, we, we, we rebuke you. So... Um, you know, all of that is part of this Rush Limbaugh uh, mentality. And, I, you know, I don't know that there'll be somebody who, come, who will come along that is that talented as a broadcaster and also take that position. There are other people who take the position and other people in communications. Um, but, you know, one of them got fired uh, before Rush Limbaugh died. Uh, what's his name on Fox? Who they oh, can't. Uh, yeah, Lou Dobbs. Lou Dobbs. Yeah. And he had he had he had big ratings, brought in a lot of money, <laughs> but you know when those lawsuits came up from the from those the firms that had the uh, voting machines, big lawsuits. And so if you just continue to lie about something like that, and it's so obvious, uh, you know the station is obviously open to a lawsuit. Uh, it, it's not that they woke up one morning and management and said, "Oh, I've got a pang of integrity." No, that didn't happen. Well, let me ask you a question uh, as a uh, as a broadcaster. Like I said, you've been in the business. Uh, all different elements. And you've done a talk show, okay? So you know, in a, in a sense, you've been in the same business uh, as Rush Limbaugh. And so putting aside the politics, and he, in my opinion, this is me, he was a despicable man who was Trump before Trump. And I, what you said is true, Richard. I'm just going to just uh, tangent on what you said. I think Trump learned from the Rush Limbaugh's of the world and took Rush Limbaugh's game uh, into the political arena. The, you know, making, like, playing on the feeling that many white men have that somehow or other they're disadvantaged in this country. <laughs> somehow or other, you know. Um, but when, as a broadcaster, uh, and you heard Rush Limbaugh. 
did you have the feeling like just straight up broadcasting, man, you're good. Did you have that feeling or did you have, God, you're obnoxious. No, I hated this politics. So I, you know, I, it was, I never, before we had this conversation, I never said, oh, he's a great broadcaster. I mean, he, he was, but I just could never say that. You know, as you pointed out, you thought his voice was very irritating. Well, yeah, he was irritating, but there have been broadcasters with irritating voices who really connected. Eddie Schwartz was one of them here in Chicago. Uh, you know, he had a, he had a, he had a terrible voice, <laughs> but Loved he, him. <laughs> he knew, he knew Chicago up and down both sides, everything. He, all the fire department knew him, all the sanitation workers, he was connected and he had the worst voice I've ever heard in radio, but it didn't matter. And I thought the guy was incredible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, because of his ability to connect, uh, Rush Limbaugh, I just never, I mean, I until you asked me that today, and I can be honest now that he's gone, uh, but I would have never said that while he was living. Yeah. He was he was an excellent broadcaster. He knew how to connect. Uh, he was really good at that. He knew how, you, how to use the language. He knew how to sway people. Uh, he was very, very good at connecting. Because the main thing about radio, and I think you probably know this and have heard this over the years, the major thing about radio has always been the people who are listening to you need to feel that you're talking to one person, to them. And he was very, very good at that. I mean, people connected with what he was saying. If that's your ideology about conservative politics, um, he made it, he gave it to you directly, unfiltered. And uh, he connected with the people who feel that way. And he also connected Ben, ben with the people who weren't sure they feel that way. You know, they're like, yeah, but uh, then they hear him and he goes in, you know, like a thousand miles an hour and they say, well, you know, maybe he's got a point. You know what I mean? He was, he was good at convincing people. Um, All right. You know, he also made a lot of money selling products. You know, he was so good at it. He made a lot of money. uh, uh, You know, he had different things he endorsed and stuff like that. So he made an awful lot of money, you know, Uh, Oh, he, he did not die a pauper, that's for sure. Uh, now, uh, interesting contrast, someone else, a legend uh, who passed, and one whose politics he uh, generally concealed. So I really don't know I'm gonna what this man's politics were, but I have to tell you, I Larry King just died. And I, I said this in the aftermath, uh, right after he died, and I'll repeat it for you, Richard. I remember Larry King as a radio guy. And I'm a big radio fan, as you know. And I used to love listening to Larry King on those. I heard him late at night. Those uh, he would just open up the lines for his listeners, and it would be like Cleveland, hello, you know. And then uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had a, he had a stick, but he was good at it. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, he connected. You know, he did the same thing we just talked about. He connected with people. They felt like. This is Larry King. Uh, you know, we can talk to him and he and he'll listen to what we have to say. Um, you know, he used to say that and we've read this in all the old bits that he his big thing was listening. Now, I could never do what he did in relationship to well his talent overall. But he used to say this thing about when he had authors on, he didn't read the book. He let them tell him about you know what the book was about. Well, obviously, you know this in public radio, NPR, or, or uh, <laughs> uh, you, you can't do that. I mean, it's, first of all, it's insulting to the author. 
I've had a couple of instances where I've really felt bad. I've had at least three instances where I did an interview that always sticks with me about how badly I did because I didn't read the, read the material. And, um, they caught me on it. You know what I mean? Uh, one of them was Thomas Sowell. You know, the Thomas Sowell is a, is a, a black conservative intellectual and, and he's really smart. You know what yeah. I mean? And he had a book uh, that was as, as, as thick as a, I mean, it was like huge. And so I did not read the whole book. I read different parts of it, but that didn't work for him. I mean, it didn't work for me. He didn't say, obviously you're stupid and you didn't read the book but I felt like I'm stupid that I didn't read the book, you know what I mean? And plus he was a conservative and I didn't like his politics. He was a black conservative. And I just, uh, but he, you know, when he was making arguments about things, I couldn't retort because I, you know, I didn't, first of all, I didn't have good arguments. I hadn't read the book. So I didn't have specific things I could key in on and say, well, what about this, blah, blah, blah. And so I always remember that as a, as a, as a deficit in my career. Larry King, on the other hand, said, look, uh, I'm not, you come on, uh, you know, tell me about you. I, that, what is the book about? What point were you trying to make? Uh, you know, are you, were you comfortable with the outcome after you finished the book? You know, like stuff that he was really good at. He was, he was, he was good. I'm like you, I to listen to him on the radio and I thought he was just, he was great at what he did. And he was an entertainer. Yeah. He was entertaining, you know. Um, and I thought that was great. I uh, no, I'm with you about Larry King. Just boldly admit it. I, I don't. Read, I don't read the book. And you know, what's funny is uh, I w- 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 didn't even plan to have this conversation, but I'm so glad we're having it because we're two radio junkies. Uh, I just saw a documentary about two months ago, or maybe a month. I've lost track of time in the pandemic. Anyway, recently about Mike Wallace, uh, the great uh, CBS uh, um, journalist, but he started out on radio. And uh, then he had, he was on uh, TV, he had a talk show uh, on TV, and he was just the opposite of Larry King. Yeah, but he was a game show host one time, too. (laughs) So, (laughs) (laughs) he was a multi-talented broadcaster, you know, but I think his his strongest shot was actually being this investigative uh, uh, journalist. I mean, he was really... When he zeroed in on your ass, he was, I mean, you, you had a, you had a problem, you know what I mean? So he was great. Well, that's the thing. And in the documentary, they showed him interviewing Larry King and, and he goes, uh, you have a reputation for asking uh, puffball questions, Larry King. You know, it was like typical Mike Wallace and Larry King just had that smile because you couldn't phase him. You'd be like, so? <laughs> 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 no. Yeah, and, that, and now what? You know, okay. Yeah, yeah he, he was real. I mean, he, he was sure of himself. He knew who he was, and he knew how to approach this medium in the, be- in the way that would suit him best. And he, he, he took it to the max. All right, so Rich, let me ask you this. Has there ever been... Uh, on the lefty or the liberal side of the equation, a broadcaster that either rivals Rush Limbaugh for his ability to speak to his audience or has somebody out there now or somebody you know before who, like, really speaks, for better or for worse, to his listeners? You mean somebody like him? Yeah, on the left, somebody from the left doing it. You know what oh, I mean? We all... on the left. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
well, the person that comes to mind immediately, and this is a television personality, and that is Rachel Maddow. She is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And there's nobody on television right now uh, who you know speaks on the uh, progressive uh, left side as well as she does. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but in all the time she's been on MSNBC, uh, I think she's only been, and a lot of this has to do with her staff too, and aside from the fact that she's brilliant, but only once or twice that she has, has she had to make an apology about something that she said during the show. And that's a, a lot of years under the belt because they, they researched uh, to the degree that they don't make many mistakes. And she's very, very curious about everything. She's absolutely brilliant. And her ability to tie the things together. I mean, she can give you a story. And by the time you get to the end of it, you totally understand what she's about to talk about or what she had talked about. And I think compared to Rush Limbaugh on the other side of it, she is, uh, I think she, she probably ranks right up there. I mean, she's really, really good. Yeah. And, and people love her. It, she's, and she's really quintessentially the opposite of Larry King because she will have read, <laughs> she does her homework, you know? Oh yeah. She, she really does her homework, you know? <laughs> and the other thing that's interesting about Rachel Maddow, yeah. I have I have never maybe you've seen it, but I have never seen uh, the Trump people trash her. You know what I mean? They've trashed other broadcasters, but uh, you would think that she'd be on the top of the list of people they would trash. Trump himself, as a matter of fact, but he, he never trashed her, and uh, I don't I don't know why that is. You know. I, I don't know why that is either. Uh, maybe tactical. I don't want to draw attention to her. I do not know. Uh, now I'm going to p- put something to you that I talk a lot about with uh, a dear friend of ours. Comes on the show every Wednesday, Monroe Anderson. We talk Trump and politics. We, and then our conversation wanders. We we almost <laughs> never t- stick to what we uh, say we're going to talk to. Sort of really, like really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Okay. So, Monroe's got a theory which uh i buy a hundred percent and that uh the uh a uh black radio personality will be given unlimited freedom to be like a rush limbaugh type but will not be given the freedom to be a lefty uh just a out and out lefty that if you if you're a, a black political uh commentator you are free to tell white people exactly what they want to hear but you're not free to tell them what they may not want to hear and that's the monroe anderson theory which i kind of buy into 100 percent. your thoughts on the monroe anderson theory okay give me that again okay so i can follow that a, uh, a conservative black commentator is free to say whatever is on his or her mind if he's so long as he's telling white people what they want to hear, he's got freedom. He can do whatever he wants. But if he's telling white people what they don't want to hear, not so much freedom. That's oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, mo- and if, you, if you find a, a, a broadcaster who's black who's in that situation, uh, it is unlikely uh, that they're going to say something to white people that is, is going to offend them. Um, a good example is, uh, I can't think of his name now, but he used to be at NPR. And he had some issues with NPR. He left several years ago and went to went to Fox. Uh, as, yeah, right, exactly. Juan, right, Juan. 
uh, the magic wand, right? And uh, he, at, when he first came to Fox, he got a lot of airtime. You saw him a lot, and you know he was he was like their Negro. You know what I mean? And uh, that surge was over, and then you don't you rarely see him anymore. I mean, you know, he's never uh, you never see him. Um, there is a there's a woman who's not a broadcaster, and she's incredibly smart, articulate. Uh, she has spoken out so many times in favor of Donald Trump, her favorite person. And she's, when you listen to, I mean, she's so smart and you know, you, you, you can't dismiss her. Her name is Candace Owens. She is, uh, you know, she's somebody who I'm sure if she was talking to, to white people and saying this such and such and such about, this is what you should also listen to this. Um, she'd be out of the box. I don't know if you know this, but she was the one after Trump got out of the hospital and he had that thing on the lawn, uh, South lawn of the, of the, of the white house when they held those people out there on a Saturday, or I think it was, and they were all, you know, he was speaking from, <laughs> from the balcony and addressing it. Well, she was helpful in organizing that. She brought a lot of people to that. And I think they made some offers and gave people 50 bucks or hundred bucks or whatever, some of the people to be there. But Candace Owens was a major part of, of that operation. And, uh, you know, at a moment's notice, she speaks on behalf of Donald Trump. Um, so she's somebody who she hasn't gotten a lot of attention. But if she ever did, because she's really smart, at least in my opinion, and she knows how to communicate. She's vicious, too. I mean, she's really vicious. I don't know if you're totally aware of her, but. Oh, yeah, no, I'm very well aware. Monroe and I talk about her a lot. Uh, and, uh, yeah, she's a. I, I remember thinking about what, what you. You just said when she got the people gathered on the lawn to celebrate Trump, and I heard it was like fifty dollars I got. I'm like, it's it would cost more than fifty dollars to get me. I'm sorry, you know. First of all, in the middle of a pandemic, nobody's wearing a mask. You yeah, know? I'm so happy, Richard, because he's like, I got it, so I'll never have to get it again. I'm free. You know, that's you know one of the awful thoughts about, and I have this discussion with friends of mine when we have this discussion uh, around Trump. Um, all the awful things that he did and, you know, January 6th, which happens to be my birthday, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, that will always be remembered and will go down in history as one of the worst, worst days in American history. Um, but think about this. What if he had won this election and a second term? That is a really horrible thought. I mean, this is, you think it's bad. It was bad then. Um, I mean, he would take retribution on all the people that weren't in his corner. And I mean, he, you know, he would be, it would be awful. I mean, I don't know whether or not that, you know, I, when I hear this thing about will democracy survive, I kind of, kind of poo poo that and say, yeah, but you know, we've been through a lot of changes and, you know, internally and racism and, and the world war two and Vietnam and a lot of other, other than nine 11. And we've always come through it, whatever it is. Uh, but, you know, this challenge to, to democracy with this guy, this was a real challenge. And, uh, I, you know, I can't imagine if he had won a second term. I just can't even imagine. That's awful. Yeah, Think no, about I, that. Uh, we talk about it all the time on the show, uh, the peculiar situation that the Republican Party is in, uh, where he clearly controls the hearts and minds of the rank and file of the Republican Party. And so the other office holders, 
are bound to him. And some of them may not want to be bound to him. And some of them may try to get out of that. Uh, but he got 77 million votes. <laughs> That's why they don't want to lose that. Lose that the conservative, uh, you know, fan base. And so they are kind of stuck. And they also, you know, the, this example of uh, people, the seven people in the Senate who voted to convict, uh, you know, they're catching hell right now. So the other senators will look at that and say, yeah, I don't know if I want to do that. Even in the face of their lives being threatened on January 6th. And so Ron Johnson, the guy from Wisconsin, who said, well, you know, like uh, there were some there were some people there who were agitators. and blah, But that, you know, I mean, it's not really that big a deal. And he said, I was never scared. Yeah, right. Let it be yeah. that day again. And, and uh, you know, all those Republicans and everybody else, along with everybody else, taking their little pins off, you know what I mean? So they wouldn't get, so they wouldn't get killed, you know? Taking his pins off. I'm sure he's hiding under a table. And it, they're so full of it, rewriting history. Because first they try to put out there that it wasn't even uh, MAGA hat people doing the riot, that it was uh, uh, Antifa. They try to put that out. So you could be damn sure that he was going to be scared if it really turned out to be an Antifa person. You get what I'm saying? But what, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wasn't afraid. No, no, no. These guys, <laughs> right. are Richard Steele. Uh, Let me tell you one more, one more thing about that. You know, like, even though... Uh, Cuomo's in a lot of trouble right now, but he, he made a statement about a week ago that I thought was perfect in relationship to uh, Republicans and uh, the QAnon thing. Mm -hmm. He said the Republicans that are into that should be called the GOP Q. <laughs> I thought that was, I thought that was perfect. You know, no wonder he won an Emmy. He's so clever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> The Emmy people should take that Emmy back. Uh, all right. I told you I was going to ask you about this, and uh, I have to ask you about this. Uh, I was very much into One Night in Miami, uh, the movie that features actors playing the roles of Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, uh, Cassius Clay at the time, gathering in uh, a hotel room in Miami the night that Cassius Clay won the heavyweight championship by defeating Sonny List in a great fight. Uh, and I thought of you uh, because of the Sam Cooke connection. Now, Sam Cooke's a generation older than you, uh, but you were breaking in. No, I guess you weren't, but you were a high school kid, a uh, young college kid when Sam Cooke was running the show and the uh, city of Chicago. And I know you never got a chance to interview him because it's before your radio career, but let's talk about the legacy of Sam Cooke uh, and the role he kind of played uh, in that movie. So talk a little bit about Sam Cooke's great legacy, uh, uh, Richard. Well, one of the biggest things, Ben, is that uh, his business approach to the music business was unheard of at that time for somebody who was black. Um, the story goes that the guy who was managing him, uh, you know, had control of, of the finances. And Sam Cooke was, something happened with him and he was in the hospital and he had a chance to read all these papers that he was supposed to sign. And he looked and he found, it looked like he was getting beat out. He said, this, this can't happen. This is not going to happen. So at some point, he took control of his of his career and in the music business when you if you write songs you do get writers royalties that's you know money paid when the music is played on the radio if you get the publishing rights that means whenever anybody 
records that song that you wrote, you will get paid forever, you know, on the publishing rights. So he had he had publishing on a lot of his stuff after he found out what the deal was. So he was an, an incredible businessman from that perspective. In terms of being a performer, I saw him perform one time. I was uh, stationed in, in Florida. Uh, I, I was stationed at that point in Orlando. But a friend of ours, I used to sing with a group when I was in the service. And uh, one of the guys, his hometown was Hope Sound, Florida, which is right outside of West Palm Beach. And it's a little black community, Hope Sound, very poor. So we took a ride in, in one of the guys' cars. There were five of us. Because we, we wanted to see if Sam Cook. I think three of us went. Uh, we were going to stay at this guy's brother's house overnight, and Sam Cooke was, was performing the next day. So we went to the concert, and Ben, I got to tell you, I have never seen women go crazy like that at a concert. And I've seen a lot of concerts over the years, and probably probably the only one maybe close to that might have been uh, Teddy Pendergrass, when women would just go berserk. Uh, Pendergrass had a record one time called Turn Out the Lights, and I was at Mill Run at one of his performances. And the ladies, uh, when he sang Turn Out the Light, they broke out all these candles. And they, they, I was like, are you serious? I mean, throughout the entire place. Sam Cooke was so smooth. I mean, he just, the, the women like melted. I mean, they were like, I mean, they were seriously ooing and eyeing. And you could like, it was, I mean, audible. You know what I mean? Because yeah. he, was, he was handsome. His performance was incredible. He had a great voice. And he was likable. He wasn't, uh, Pendergrass was a little arrogant. Uh, but Sam Cooke didn't come across as arrogant. He came across as somebody that everybody liked. And uh, that made him such a huge star. He was absolutely incredible. So I was grateful that I had that one opportunity to, opportunity to see him perform. Um, I, I didn't know his brother well. I knew him to have some conversations with L.C. Cook, who passed away a few years ago. Uh, but I never met Sam. And, uh, you know, I mean, the guy was just phenomenal. Nobody in that category. And it's kind of like they didn't exactly do this. But remember when Tom Jones was big and women would women would throw their panties on the stage? Yeah. <laughs> well, they, they didn't quite do that, but it was close. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, when you were, were doing that uh, riff, I was thinking of Tom Jones. Funny, you read my mind because Tom Jones was the other one uh, that <clears> – <throat> Panties, hotel key. <laughs> right. Like, people go to a hotel room. And I'm like, how are you going to get the room? <laughs> you mean you and I were both thinking about Tom Jones? Wow, you know. <laughs> I, won't, I won't lie to you. Uh, I'm a huge Tom Jones fan. I love Tom Jones. Not as much as I love Sam Cooke. He's one of my all-time favorites. And that was exchanged. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, and I want to give too much away, although you really should have seen it already, but... Um, those exchanges in the hotel room between Sam Cooke and uh, Malcolm X, I, I, I was, I'll tell you why I find it a little hard to take. Cause the way, and I understand a writer does things uh, for creative purposes, dramatic purposes. I, I, I get all that. Yeah. But, creative license. Yeah. But Sam Cooke did not need Malcolm X to pull somehow or other from his record, from his motel room, uh, Bob Dylan, Singing, uh, what was it? Um, blowing, blowing in the wind. Blowing yeah, it was wind. blowing in the wind, right? And Sam Cooke was very well aware of blowing. He actually sang "Blowing in the Wind" in concert, so he knew yeah. about. Blowing. 
And he knew it. He, he said, I read a, bi- a biography of him, Richard, where he said, as soon as I heard that white boy singing that song, I knew I had to up my game. You know what I mean? But he didn't need Malcolm X to tell him that is what I'm saying. <laughs> that was crazy. And it's like, no, that's not true. <laughs> that was creative license. I, you know, you asked me when we did talk about, uh, I think you, did, you asked me about what I thought about the movie. And I had mixed emotions about it. A lot of people, uh, I mean, they talked about it. It was a great movie. It's going to be nominated for this and the other thing. And, you know, sometimes you don't want to be too contrary in conversations like that. And especially in this situation where, uh, as an African-American, and the story was about four very well-known people, and uh, it, it can be, I mean, you know, it can be difficult to come out and say, I think, thought the meeting, I mean, the movie was just okay when everybody is saying, well, it was a great movie, it was a great, not so much. And plus, the other part about that is, there are only two people that I know of that could play Malcolm X. Malcolm X is one of them, and Denzel Washington is the other. And and, and so, you know, I, I can't get beyond that. All right. Uh, well, this uh, this will bring up the topic uh, that you and I briefly touched upon before uh, we came on the air, so we might as well have it now. Uh, it will be our final topic of the conversation, because this one is going to go for a while. And this is my pet peeve at the moment. And I told you uh, before you're in the air, I go, everybody says, oh, Ben, you sound like Donald Trump, but I'm going to say it. I believe the gentleman, the actor who played uh, – uh, Muhammad Ali in the movie was uh, British. Maybe it was Malcolm X. I can't remember. But it's the same thing with the Fred Hampton movie. The actor <laughs> it was British. And yeah. Richard Steele, you can't tell me there are no 20-year-old actors in the city of Chicago who could have played Fred Hampton. And uh, at the risk of sounding like Donald Trump, I think it's getting a little carried away with all these Brits playing Americans in movies. Defend uh, that that position or attack or criticize it, go. Well, here's the situation about that. I mean, obviously, there, there was a move in Hollywood to uh, discourage that or at least to comment on it negatively. Samuel L. Jackson was one of the... We had a little technical difficulty there. What happened? The Zoom uh, meeting expired, but we're going to pick it up and close it down uh, with the great uh, Richard Steele over the phone. So, Richard, before we uh, were interrupted by Zoom crashing... Uh, you were weighing in on whether I was too much like Donald Trump in my attitude <laughs> that the Brits are taking over all these roles that should be going to Americans. And you were started by saying Samuel L. Jackson. Great minds think alike. Samuel L. Jackson was making a similar comment. Finish your thought uh, before we head out the door. Well, yeah, I mean, the people we were talking about, the, the woman who played, played Harriet Tubman was English uh, in, in that movie about Harriet Tubman, uh, Fred Hampton, the one you're talking about, because he's a Chicago, and we feel especially close to that. And uh, that guy's an English actor. The guy who played Dr. King in that movie, he was an English actor. The argument is this, on the other side of that. When you, when you audition for parts, and you're in Hollywood, are we saying that you uh, cannot audition for a part uh, to play an American iconic figure if you are not American? I mean... Does that mean that, or does the best person for the job get it? A, and I mean, I heard your point about, you. sure, there are other people who could have done that. And uh, you're absolutely right, I think. I mean, we have some great actors. 
uh, in this country. The other argument I always hear is that you you rarely see anybody who is an American play an English person with an English accent. Mm-hmm. Well, the, re- the reality the reality about that, what I've been told in terms of what I've read about acting and those and those you know repeating those lines is that. For some reason, it's easier for English actors to do American accents because many of them are classically trained, and they're able to do it much easier than an American um, an American actor trying to do a British accent. So, you know, I I have mixed emotions about it, but I do feel that, uh, like you do, that there should be uh, American actors who can play those parts. But on the other hand, I I, I hate to say that I, I see another black person who has acting abilities being shut out because they happen to be English uh, or whatever. There's another, I don't know if you know about this, but there was a, a piece about Aretha Franklin that mm-hmm. was being done by, by BBC America. Uh, it was a sort of a, uh, a, not a documentary, but more closely, more, more closely related to a documentary. And uh, this was an English woman, the same woman who played Harriet Tubman, as a matter of fact, was going to do that for the BBC. It was supposed to be out last spring. I don't know whether it ever came out or not, but that, that to me is really egregious to have uh, uh, an English woman play Aretha Franklin. Come on, eh? yeah. what's up with that? You know, listen, listen I, it go, to me, it goes beyond uh, black roles. I mean, it, th- this is a common thing. And, and oh, God, I may am sounding more and more like Donald Trump and Rush Limbaugh as time goes on. But this notion that somehow or other the Brits and their classical training uh, have an advantage over Americans. Uh, Richard, I'll tell you, any good American actor can learn to speak with a British accent. Oh, without question. I'm not an actor. I'm not even a a bad actor. And I still can speak with a British accent. And I've never had training. So, you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) I... I, uh, this is just a minor pet peeve of mine. I told you I saw The Undoing, which is a show uh, that takes place in an upper class uh, Manhattan, uh, Upper East Side uh, family and uh, prep school. Uh, not a black person in that show. And all of it was like <laughs> Hugh Grant, Nicole Kidman and the kid were all, you know, it was he was British. I'm like, well, you couldn't find some preppy actor in New York. There's tons of them. So, yeah, I mean, I and, uh, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right about that, and that is irritating. I mean, it's irritating to me on the one hand. I'm trying to be fair on the other hand and say, well, should these people be excluded? Uh, and their agents, um, you know, their agents are pushing for them to get to work, you know what I mean? And so Hollywood then decides uh, who they want to play these roles, and for some reason, and it isn't because these people are big box office. None of them are, none of the people that we're talking about, and they've had some successes. I mean, the actor who played Dr. King, Yes, he's had he's had he's had some some successes, but not not like that. And the guy who plays Fred Hampton has been in a couple of movies, but not the kind that will help you at the box office. That would be my major contention. Why are you doing that? Um, as you pointed out, there are actors who could do that who are American actors who are incredibly talented. Uh, why would you do that? Um, and it has nothing to do with the box office. I mean, that's not going to bring people in at the box office. Yeah. You know, so. Uh, I, I don't uh, I don't get that. Uh, I, I, Don I'm Don. Really... Che- by the way, one more one more uh, thing about accent. Don Cheadle, who who played uh, uh, Stephen Biko, you know the, yeah. the uh, 
the uh, African South, South African guy who was a mm-hmm. yeah who who was a revolutionary. Um, I listened. Well, not, not not I take that back. Not that part. The word the, the other movie that he played in where it was in Rwanda. That movie. Yeah, Rwanda. Yeah. He was with, in, the, in the, the movie about Steve Biko. That was uh, Denzel. But the movie about Rwanda, you know, was uh, uh, I just said his name and escaped me that quickly. Don Cheadle. Uh, Don Cheadle. In any case, I listen closely as probably you do for accents to see and see if I can catch them slipping. You know what I mean? As you pointed out about some of the things you watch, where every now and then you can hear that. British accent sort of sneak in, yeah. uh, you know, even though they're, they're very good with you, because you, you, you can hear it. We're used to hearing ourselves and other people, so you, you know when you hear something that's foreign to you. Well, Cheadle, he never slipped once in that African accent in that movie. Not I listened, and I, I've seen it twice, and I kept waiting to hear him <laughs> slip. He never slipped, and I think that's a great tribute to American acting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Hotel Rwanda. Cheeto's one of the best. Uh, he's one of my favorite actors. Uh, sometime we, I don't know if you ever saw that Miles Davis movie he made, which was, I, I, <laughs> it was kind of hokey. Miles Davis. Yeah, plays, it, it was, it, 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 he, but he solves a crime. He's like a private detective. I don't know. I, it kind of kind of went all over the place, but I loved it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't, I didn't. Yeah, it was not a good movie. I mean, uh, you know, Cheadle can never be bad yeah. um, because he's such a great actor. But uh, what I read about that, he was dissatisfied with it himself. And uh, the guy who is uh, Miles's nephew, who signed on to it because he's one of the people that controls the estate, uh, he wasn't very happy with it either. And so, and none of the jazz people liked it at all. I mean, the, the people in the jazz community hated that movie. Yeah, uh, Richard. I think the only person in America who liked that movie was me. Okay, so <laughs> I just thought Probably. it was so funny. Miles uh, Davis solving a crime. I don't know. It just got a big kick out of it. Like I said, it was a yeah. movie as all hell. Um, anyway, Richard Steele, um, it's a blast talking to you. And uh, let me let me say, let me tell you one more thing before you go. There's a yeah. movie on February February 26th about Billy Holiday. Um, I think it's HBO, but check it out. I will definitely check it out. I, I've been uh, waiting for that movie to come out. Uh, you know, the only good thing about this pandemic is that I just, every night, uh, Richard, I I didn't do this before the pandemic, but literally I'm watching movies and shows. I don't know, something about being in the house that every now and then I got to put a book down, I got to put the newspaper down and do something else. You know what I mean? So the something else I do is uh, watch a TV show or a movie. So I'm I'm actually probably watching even more movies than I used in the old days before the pandemic. I would go out, uh, I would go out uh, pretty much every Saturday uh, to go see a movie. So now uh, I see a lot of them. I will definitely watch uh, that Billy Holiday. And your uh, assignment is to watch uh, the Fred Hampton movie, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. <laughs> okay, and I got it. you. <laughs> All right, all right, Richard Steele, stay safe and sound. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure. That's the great Richard Steele. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.